Good morning, everyone. I've got a lot to say and a little time to say it, so I'm going to move uh, rather swiftly. I'm going to let this screen do most of my, well, a lot of my talking. Uh, Romans 8.28, a promise that we all hold dear to. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We're living in a very difficult time. Right now our nation is in a lot of trouble. A lot of things going on that's uh, not so good. But we have uh, promises from God that are uh, very important that should give us a lot of assurance. And this is one of those promises, and that's what I'd like to speak about for a few moments today. Paul said we know. We know is to have objective knowledge. We know because we got a book of history at God's dealings with people and how God has bailed them uh, out of the fire, so to speak, uh, many, many times through history. We know that all things work together for good. We know that all things, now all things has to be uh, quantified. All things doesn't mean all things. For example, notice Matthew 3, 5. Uh, Matthew said, all the region round about the Jordan went out to see Jesus. All the region. Is that really true? Luke adds, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. All the region went out to see Jesus, but the Pharisees and lawyers did not. So all does not mean all in the proper sense of the term. Sometimes you have to take things in their context and that's how we discern what the truth is or what's actually being said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, for example, Paul said the spiritual man is able to judge all things. All things? Can the spiritual man judge legal matters, for example? Has he got that capacity? When Paul said the spiritual man is able to judge all things, exactly what was he talking about? Well, when you look at the context, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul, speaking about the spiritual man, compares spiritual things with spiritual. So what Paul actually means in 1 Corinthians 2.15 is the spiritual man is able to judge all things that are spiritual. Why? Because God has given us a book of information. And because we have that book, we can make discernment if we are of a spiritual mind. That's important too. Uh, in the context of Romans 8.28, exactly what does Paul mean when he says all things work together for good? Uh, in, in verse 17 of that chapter, he says, If we suffer with Jesus, we will be glorified with Jesus. The text is dealing with suffering. And if we continue to be faithful, then we will ultimately be glorified. Suffering is a part of life. Suffering will be a part of our life. And if we endure the suffering, then one day we shall be glorified, even as the Son of God was glorified. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. What things are Paul talking about? He think those things that have to do with suffering. God can take the suffering that we have to live through and make it work on our behalf. We know that all things work together. A little two words there is really neat. Work together. Uh, it has to do with providence, God's ability to function within the realm of law, nature, laws of nature. <clears throat> providence means to see beforehand. 
the ability of God to see what's coming before it actually happens. He knows the judgment day, for example, already. He doesn't have to wait. We do. We have to wait until the judgment day takes place. But God doesn't. He transcends time, and nothing is hidden from his eyes. He sees all things. He knows the end from the beginning, as was read a few moments ago by Tom. There's nothing he does not know, including what's coming up for us tomorrow. And when he talks about works together, he's talking about the providence of God in conjunction with the things pertaining to this world. The word works together is from the Greek term synergio, and it's the active voice present tense form. It's the activity being orchestrated by God is ongoing. God is constantly working. On the seventh day, the Lord may have rested, but he ain't never rested since because he's constantly involved in our lives. He's constantly involved in the things that are going on in our lives. There's nothing he does not know. We're suffering from a recession right now. We're watching inflation, the prices uh, go through the roof. Got gasoline's up a dollar a gallon. And they say it's gonna get up to $5 a gallon by Christmas. God knows all these things. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. He knows what is today. He knows what's coming tomorrow. And in that, we should find a great deal of satisfaction. Because if God knows what's coming, he knows how to prepare us for that which is coming. So we have a hope to lean on that other people just don't have. And that's worth more than money. And Dwayne Jackson uh, adds, suggests this is an intricate plan whose components are harmoniously operating toward a grand conclusion. God is working like a, like a potter molding clay. God is working all things to come out to his satisfaction. Not necessarily man's satisfaction, but it's going to ultimately come out to the satisfaction of deity. He can't lose. He's only a winner. He doesn't know anything less than victory. The will of God shall always prevail regardless of what we want, regardless of what others want. Nobody can stop him because he's just that big. He's unstoppable, and he can work things around the way he wants it. And once we understand that, well, then we don't have to be fearful of what's coming. We don't have to be fearful of what the socialists are doing. We know, we know that in the end, it's all going to work out for good. You may have to get your toes burned on the way, but ultimately, it will be good. All things work together for good, and the word good means beneficial in its effects. In other words, we're going to come out the better for it. You can't lose. Paul said we are more than conquerors. Listen to him. We are more than conquerors. What does he mean? We already conquered. We already won. We've already been victorious. We are. That's past tense. That's the present tense. This is what we are because of Christ Jesus. You cannot lose if you can believe what Jesus has said, and it's so important. And we've got a wealth of history that teaches us that. The Lord doesn't create adversity. He manipulates it, turning it to our advantage. We say it like this today, give them lemons and you make lemonade. We've all heard that one. Well, that's the way God does. Somebody can give us lemonade, lemon, 
and God can turn it into lemonade. What somebody meant to be a problem can be made a beneficial thing rather than a, a loss or a suffering. That's the power of God. What does that mean? We're always going to benefit? We're not, we're, we're not going to suffer? No, it's not what it means. Before there can be the benefit, there may very well be some suffering. But ultimately, it's going to be beneficial. You give a child a spanking and they cry. Why? Because it hurt. And nobody wants to hurt. Hopefully, it works out for their good. Hopefully, they won't run back out in the road again. You didn't do it because you hate them. You did it because you love them. They had to endure a little suffering so that they could receive the blessing you were trying to help them find. And that's the way God works with each one of us. We're just like big kids. Sometimes I think we think a little too much of ourselves. But God deals with us as though we're children sometimes because that's the way we behave. Heaven's purpose will be realized even in life's hard moments. You can't stop God. His purpose will be. You can't stop God. It's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. There's no government so big. There's no man so powerful that he can stop God from executing his will. It just ain't going to happen. Few people believe it, but they're going to understand. Look at all the greats through history. Alexander the Great, considered one of the greatest generals that ever lived. Where is he today? He went back to the dust. Where is Alexander at today? Like all people, he's in Hades, awaiting the resurrection and the day of judgment. He has no recourse. He has no choice. This was the will of God, and God's will shall be done. There's nobody that powerful that they can overturn God's will. Evidence abounds. One of the most powerful evidences I know of is the life of Joseph. And I want to go through it rather quickly because I know that most all of us are familiar with it. 20 years into the future, there's going to be a seven-year famine and human life is going to be threatened. If something is not done, human life may become non-existent. A seven-year famine could leave the, the world without food and water. And, of course, that means certain death. The Lord knew that was going to happen. Nobody else did. Jacob, he didn't know it. The Egyptians, they didn't know it. Nobody had a clue that something like that would happen. But it was going to happen, and God knew it was going to happen. So what did he do? He took steps beforehand to prepare for that seven-year period to make sure that the world did not starve to death. He chose Joseph, who became the world's savior. He was, in fact, the world's savior because Joseph was instrumental in saving the world at that time. He saved the fleshly lives of people. Now, Jesus would come along later, and he would be the world's savior, not in the sense that he saved the fleshly lives of people, but that he saved the souls of people from dying and experiencing a devil's hell. Uh, Joseph is a type of Jesus who would ultimately come. He was an example of the one God will one day send into the world to die for the sins of the world. In Acts 7, verse 9, uh, Luke tells us that the patriarchs, these are the brothers of Joseph, becoming envious of Joseph because his daddy was partial to him. 
the patriarchs, becoming envious of Joseph, uh, they sold him into Egypt. They wanted to kill him at first, but uh, cooler heads prevailed, and they decided instead to sell him, send him off to Egypt, and let them do something with him down there. But the important part of it is God was with Joseph. His whole world flipped upside down. I can't imagine what went through his heart and mind. I can't imagine what it was like to be sold by your own brothers. I mean, that is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of. He's got 11 brothers there, and he's, he's, he's betrayed by them. I, what went through the guy's mind, I have no idea. And then to beat it all, nobody came to get him. He was alone. He was left alone. He was abandoned. What kind of thoughts went through Joseph? He felt like a man who had, who had failed miserably. He was only 17 years old. He was still learning to become a man. He'd always been taught. He always believed that God was with him. But the big question now was, where was God? Why would God allow something like this to happen? How could something so bad happen to someone who was so good? Literally so good. In Matthew 28, 20, you and I have promises very similar to the promise we see with Joseph. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God was with Joseph when he was in trouble. God was with Joseph when he was sold on the auction block. God was there with Joseph. Joseph was never by himself. And the promise, the same promise is made to you and I. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, the author said that God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can a man do to me if God is on my side? What can man do to me? Well, the worst he can do is, is, is kill you. But he can't kill you. Because we don't die that way. Joseph was sold into slavery and God went with him down into Egypt. Joseph was bought by a man named Potiphar, or his title rather was Potiphar. In Genesis 39 and verse 2, when Joseph entered into the house of this man Potiphar, again the Lord was with him. The Lord was in that Egyptian man's house because he was right there with Joseph. And because the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph was made a successful man. God made him successful. He was, pardon me, I went too fast on my button. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. She said he tried to rape her. It was a lie. Potiphar, I don't think he believed it, but he had to do something. If Potiphar had believed that Joseph tried to rape his wife, he'd have killed him. There would have been no question. That would be the end of Joseph. But he did. Instead, he put him in the prison. I think Potiphar probably knew his wife pretty well. But he had to do something because he was a person of position. Therefore, he had Joseph thrown into the prison. And God went with him into that prison. When he was put into the prison, we're told in Genesis 39 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Over and over, notice how the Lord continues to remind us that he's always with Joseph, no matter where he went. 
God was always with him. He showed him steadfast love constantly. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph raised up among the other prisoners. He was a model prisoner. He became a leader of prisoners. He was given special privilege like the modern trustee. Joseph became a man to whom the, the guard over the prisoner had entrusted him with certain freedoms and liberty. And Joseph used those <coughs> gifts for good, and it worked out to his own advantage. And then he ran into the chief butler and the baker, and you may remember the event. They each had a dream, and they didn't know what the meaning of the dream was. Joseph interpreted those dreams for them. He explained to them what it meant. In the end, the chief butler was going to be given his job back. He would once again be the chief butler to the Pharaoh. The chief baker, on the other hand, was going to lose his head. His head would be lifted from his body, Joseph said. And just as Joseph believed what he told, it came to pass. The baker's head was lifted, and the butler returned to his former position. And Joseph I suppose, was excited because the butler would surely tell the Pharaoh of what had happened and why he was given his place back, the interpretation of the dream. But days went by and Joseph heard nothing. Months went by and Joseph heard nothing. Finally, two years went by and Joseph had heard nothing. Obviously, the butler was uh, not interested in the life of times of Joseph, the Jew, the Hebrew, I should say. It was two years later, though. Pharaoh had a dream. It was a weird dream. Uh, and then the butler remembered Joseph. The, the Pharaoh wanted his dream interpreted, but nobody could interpret it. The wise men of Egypt, they could not interpret his dream. He couldn't get an answer to what was going on. They thought deity spoke to him in this manner. Actually, deity was speaking to him. But they thought deity always spoke to him in this manner, telling them things that they needed to know regarding future events. On this occasion, it was true. No doubt God was the author of the dreams. But he couldn't find anybody to interpret the dream, and he was frustrated beyond belief. The butler was sitting there listening, and all of a sudden, bang, the light went on. He remembered Joseph, the guy that interpreted the dreams for me and the baker. He knows how to interpret dreams. And he told the Pharaoh what this Hebrew man had done. He interpreted our dreams, and it came to pass just like he said it would. And the Pharaoh wanted a conference with Joseph, and he had one. Joseph was standing before the Pharaoh. Thirteen years after his brother sold him into slavery, there stood Joseph before the most powerful man on earth, looking at him eye to eye. And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly, and gaunt. Such ugliness I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. Them are ugly cows. And he didn't understand the purpose of the dream. The gaunt, the ugly cows, they ate up the first seven cows, those big fat cows. 
And after they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them by it because they were just as ugly as at the beginning. And so I awoke. After these seven lean cows ate those big fat cows, those lean cows were still lean. You couldn't tell they'd eaten anything. They looked like they were starving to death. And Pharaoh said, I woke up. Then he had seven, uh, a dream about seven uh, heads of uh, wheat. It was very similar to the first dream, so I'm not going to read it. But it was similar. There were seven big heads. There were seven small heads. The small heads consumed the big heads, yet the small heads remained small. He didn't understand the meaning of the dream. And then Joseph was going to explain to him exactly what the dream meant. Above everything, above all things, is the Lord God Almighty. He declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. He is able to see things beforehand, declare the end from the beginning. At the time, before this, this day, actually, God had seen future events. He looks 20 years into the future, and he knows there's a seven-year famine coming. Just as sure as I'm standing here, that famine is going to come. He also knew that before the seven-year famine, there was going to be seven years of plenty. Keep in mind, seven fat years, seven lean years. Okay, you can see the, the parallel to the dreams right off the bat. But God's seen something else as well. He's seen the Savior of the world in this event. He's seen Joseph. And in addition to Joseph, he saw the brothers of Joseph. They were an important element in this whole event that was going to take place because they were of such character that they would actually stoop to selling their brother as a slave into a foreign nation. He knew how sorry they were. He knew how little they were. And he was going to use their sorriness to accomplish his will. All things work together for good. There's a good man, Joseph. There are the sorry men, his brothers. And with the Lord being the orchestrator, all these things were going to work together for good eventually. So it began. There was first, Joseph was sold into bondage at the age of 17. Okay? Then some 13 years later, Joseph is standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt, most powerful man on earth. A 17-year-old kid, a Hebrew kid. Now, you've got to understand, the Egyptians had nothing to do with the Hebrews. The Hebrews were very low class to the Egyptians. The likelihood of any Hebrew standing before the Pharaoh seems almost negligible. But a 17-year-old kid who soon grew to become a 30-year-old kid standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt, not likely. But in God's world, things like that can happen. God can make things like that happen. And it did happen. And there was Joseph standing before the Pharaoh. Nine years later, we're now two years into the famine, and Joseph has an encounter with his brothers, the guys who had sold him into slavery. They too came face to face in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 6. His brothers, these Hebrews, were humbled by the fact of what they had done. It had been eating them up for many years. They grieved heavily over what they had done. 
And when they came face to face with Joseph, I don't know if it was so much that they were afraid of him as it was that they were too ashamed to look him in the eye. They had done him wrong. They realized they had done him wrong. Long ago, they had repented of their sin. Joseph wasn't aware of it. But after talking with these men, he did soon become aware of it. And they kissed and made up. And what happened? Success. God's will came to pass. It took 20 years, but God's will came to pass. God seen what was coming. He took the steps necessary to bring his plan to fruition. His plan ultimately ended in success. Now, the sad part is it required a lot of suffering on the part of Joseph. Betrayed by his brothers. His daddy never come to look for him. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, unjustly put into prison. He was forgotten by the butler. Joseph suffered more than most, but this was part of God's plan. His suffering was a part of bringing Joseph face to face with this man, Pharaoh. 13 years after he was first sold into slavery. And just as the Lord had said, there were seven years of plenty. Crops were, man, they were growing crazy. The Egyptian government was buying up everything they could get their hands on. They had to build warehouses to store all this stuff. And they were found about two or three years ago. Thousands of them were found in part of Egypt over there. Anyway, uh, after filling them up, came the famine. Second year into the famine, the world has no food. There's no food to go around. Everybody is going to starve to death. Hey, I heard, there's, I heard there's grain for sale down in Egypt. So they all went down to Egypt to get their food. They had probably bought their grain, Joseph did, perhaps, let's say 10 cents a pound. And now he's selling it for a dollar a pound, making a fortune off of it. He made Pharaoh a very rich man. He was very successful in his endeavors. But most importantly, he saved the world from certain death. Why? Because he was a godly man. It's like when the Lord looked around to try to save humanity from the global flood that was going to come. He found Noah. And now at this time, he looked around and he found Joseph. There seems to always be a godly person somewhere in the picture who can get the job done and allow God working through them to accomplish the divine will. I wonder if one day that godly person might be me or might be you. I don't know. But I do know how God operates, and I wonder. Joseph confronted his brothers in Genesis chapter 15, verse 20. He said, you, you guys, you sold me into slavery, and you meant it for evil. God, on the other hand, he watched you sell me into slavery, and he meant to work it out for good. You meant evil. You handed me a sack of lemons, and God meant good. 
he took your lemons and made lemonade. And now we're all drinking cool drinks today. In order, he did this in order to bring about it as it is right now to save many people alive. God wanted to save the world. And he did. And we can read how he did it. Messiah was going to come into the world and be the savior of the world. In Genesis 49 verse 10, the Lord told mankind long ago, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the scepter, kingship, Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. The scepter, kingship, shall never depart from Judah. God's plans were frustrated by men. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. What did they do? They chose Saul to be their king. God didn't want Saul to be their king, but they made their choice. They wanted Saul to be their king, and God let them have what they asked for. But Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. God's plans had been frustrated. He said the scepter would never depart from Judah. He didn't say anything about Benjamin. How could the Israelites choose Benjamin as the tribe of their kings when they knew full well that the Lord intended to come out of the tribe of Judah? Because, frankly, they didn't care. They were going to do it their way. Judah was the tribe God wanted. Benjamin was the tribe they chose. And because of that, God's plan could suffer. In Hosea 13 11, there's an awkward statement made. God said, speaking of Israel, I have given you a king in my anger, talking about Saul. I have given you a king in my anger. When I appointed Saul to be king of Israel, I was angry with you people. And he punished those people by giving them Saul as a king. And later he said, I have taken him away in my wrath. God was angry in the beginning. He was angry in the end because they had frustrated his plan. But ultimately, all things worked together for good because after Saul was beheaded, David became the king of Israel. David out of the tribe of Judah. Judah came to be the tribe of the kings just as the Lord had prophesied it would be. God made all things come together for good. The spread of New Testament Christianity was intended by our Lord. The goal is stated in Mark 16 and 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That was Jesus' goal. But the church, the early church, didn't seem to care too much about his goal because in Jerusalem they were all sitting still. They were happy, they were content. They intended to go nowhere whatsoever. The Lord had told him, go into all the world. But they weren't going, they weren't doing anything, and the Lord was not happy with their satisfaction. Opposition arose to the church. David, or not David, I'm sorry, Saul, Paul, wanted to destroy Christ's church, Acts 8 and Acts 9. He was very violent in trying to destroy the church. The record says, out of fear, the disciples fled from Jerusalem. They went everywhere, preaching the word, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. The Lord got them up. The Lord got them to moving. 
They didn't want to get up and move, but the Lord, he got them to moving. He let Saul go into Jerusalem and assault them. Remember what Jesus requested into all the world. Well, Luke says they went everywhere. That would be into all the world. Preaching the word, Luke said, and they went everywhere preaching the gospel to every creature. The church wasn't too interested in performing the will of God, but he got them interested. He can always get someone interested in doing what they're supposed to do, provided they have a heart to make the Lord happy. We know that all things work together for good. This promise is not to all people. Everybody doesn't live with this promise. It's a promise made to a certain few. We know that all things work together for good for some people. Not all. Sometimes people think it means all. It don't mean all. God so loved the world. God is emotionally attached to the entire world. That's not what that means. God doesn't have an emotional attachment to the world. He doesn't see most people as his children. He refers to them as his offspring because he creates their spirits. But as far as children, not even close. There's a certain few that he quantifies as his children. Who are they? They're those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. These are those to whom all things work together for good. I would like for the Lord to be on my side. I would like for the Lord to take my lemons in life and turn them into lemonade. He will. Provided I'm willing to listen to him, however. It's so sad today to me that so many people today have no interest in ever addressing the question, why am I alive? It's amazing how many people there are who just live taking everything for granted. Why they're here, where they're going, they just don't care. They just live from one type of payment to another. Get enough food to keep you alive today, enough drugs to go into your arms, and all will be well. Don't care about tomorrow. Don't care about next year. They just live aimlessly. I was watching on TV the other day. They were showing a picture of Kamala Harris. I don't know if it's New York or Washington. And out of everybody they asked, and there must have been about 20, I guess, that I saw, there was one woman that knew who she was. The rest of them didn't know that she was the vice president of the United States. It's amazing. It's sad how little people think these days. I think it might come from the fact that there's so little reading that goes on in the world today. So little reading going on in school today. All they're going to tell you is that you ought to be ashamed you're white because white people are evil people. You ever heard of critical race theory? Coming to a school near you. Keep your antennas up. But it's so sad that many people don't think about the lofty thoughts of life. 
if you're here today, if you're not a Christian, we are here to bring glory to God. That's the purpose of life. We glorify God because we believe what God has said. Because he said, we repent of our sins. Because we know we confess Jesus as the Son of God. And because he requires that we are buried in water for the forgiveness of sins as Christians. Is God going to have to make us get up off our good intentions and go to work? Because if he does, he will. And if he does, it won't be pretty. Look in your heart. Answer these simple questions. If Jesus came right now, how would you fare?